Well, Merry Christmas to everybody. Or happy Advent for you liturgically minded people. We are super glad that you've joined us. For those of you online, we're glad that you've joined us as well. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, I was talking with my mom this last week, and my mom's a grammar teacher and a poet, and I just got zero language ability. I just, it's not how I'm wired. And so I don't read books for fun. Um, but what I do is I watch movies. Are there any movie people here? Yes. Oh, okay. I love movies. I love watching them. I love, uh, I love watching them, right? And, um, but every now and then, sometimes there's movies that cross over from movies and they cross over into film, right? Where uh, just a joy-filled movie actually has something to say to the world, has something to say about the culture, has something to say to the church. And, uh, and I don't know if, you've, you know, if this has happened to you, you'll see a movie from like years and years ago and then you rewatch it and you're like, that does not hold up, right? Like the world has changed so dramatically. You have, you know, movies that were made before social media, movies that were made before COVID. And you're like, oh, this, this movie holds up and it, and it actually doesn't. But there is this film that, uh, that I was reminded about this Christmas season that I just think, gosh, even over 15 years later, it holds up. It actually speaks to our culture in a really unique way. And I think it speaks to us as Christians in a really kind of challenging way. And, it, and you may have seen it. Um, it didn't make the Oscars for some reason, but it was the film uh, Talladega Nights, the, the ballad of, of Ricky Bobby. I don't know if you've, uh, if, if you've seen this film. I mean, it's incredible. Um, <laughs> Okay, maybe, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. However, there is this scene in this movie that I, I've, I've remembered it. I've watched it a bunch of times. I, it inspired me to rewatch the whole movie, which doesn't hold up as well as you think it was. But the scene where um, he's sitting around this table and he's saying grace and he's getting ready to, uh, they have a race the next day and they're praying over their Doritos or whatever. And, they're, you know, and, and he begins his prayer uh, with, you know, dear baby Jesus, right? And he begins this whole prayer. Everything's baby Jesus baby Jesus. And then it's kind of like this, his wife's like, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. Like he was a grown man, you know, he's like, no, I like the Christmas Jesus. And they start having this whole fight around the Christmas table of who do you pray for? And, uh, and Ricky Bobby's like, I pray to the Christmas Jesus. I like baby Jesus. And then he begins this whole prayer with his gold, you know, his gold diapers and his little chubby arms and, you know, paints this picture of this little tiny baby and praying to this baby. And, uh, and I love the, uh, you know, his father-in-law is like all mad at him. He's like, he's a man. He had a beard. And he's like, well, when you pray, you can pray to the baby Jesus, to the teenage Jesus, to the bearded Jesus. You can pray to whoever Jesus you want. And then his son's like, well, when I pray to Jesus, I think of Jesus as a ninja warrior, you know, fighting off samurai. And uh, his buddy Hal's like, and, and I like to think of Jesus and wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because, you know, my Jesus is formal, but he likes to party. And I like to party, you know? And this thing just goes, it, it unravels, you know, as you can imagine. And, uh, and for as funny as it is, it, the thing that if you actually think about it for a second, what's horrifying is that's actually what we do as, as humans, right? As Christians, we, right? Because we, we just have the stories of Christmas. We have the stories of Jesus, we, you know? And so we think of, oh, Christmas, it's baby Jesus. We have this, uh, you know, we've seen the movies of the 70s of Jesus being this really effeminate, you know, kind-hearted traveler with a pink sash or a blue sash, right? And, uh, but there's just something in us that we, that we want to make the person we're praying to um, approachable, or even more in our image. And what's wild is it's actually a human thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. There's, this, uh, there's a temple in Japan, and it's a Buddhist temple. And in this temple, there are over a thousand Buddhist uh, shrines, 
a thousand little mini Buddhas, and every Buddha is shaped differently. It's a different size, different shape, different gender. And the idea is that it, they found that people like going into this temple and finding the Buddha that is the closest representation of them, and that's how they have their spiritual encounter. Like, it is a human thing to make God either into our image or into something that we can understand and control. And the Christian message, the Christian uh, Christmas story, is that God actually upends that whole thing. Christmas is this mysterious hidden God actually comes and has made himself known so that we can actually worship the one true God and have that God mold us and shape us. And so this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to continue on our Advent series. We're going to continue on the story of the shepherds. Uh, and this is where they encounter the angels. And the angels proclaim that, yes, he is a little eight-pound, four-ounce baby Jesus, but we don't just pray to the Christmas Jesus. We realize that Jesus is the Savior, he's the Messiah, and he's the Lord. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue on in our story. All right, so here we are, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, right? But then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. This is the message right here. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Gosh, what an incredible story. In fact, it's Christmas card season. I love all the Christmas cards coming, and I love pictures of everybody's family, but every now and then a couple people just hit it right, and it's that message, gosh, peace on earth to whom God's favor rests. Right? All of this, all of what God did is so that we would be at peace with God and have peace with each other. So this morning, we're going to take a look at these three titles because these titles are so pregnant with meaning. They're so rich in meaning. And I think as we think about Christmas and we sing the Christmas carols and when we pray in our own devotional life that we want to make sure we make the switch from praying to little precious baby Jesus to praying to Jesus who's our Savior and our Messiah and Lord. So let's look at the first word, that Jesus is the Savior. Now the word there in Greek is soter, it's the Savior, which makes sense, right? It's translated from Greek, means Savior. It's pretty easy. Well, the, that word not, not only means savior, what's, it is actually pointing to, uh, to this, the, the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. So in 27 BC, uh, Octavius, Gaius Octavius was crowned Caesar Augustus, right? And you know the Christmas story? Caesar Augustus, right? he had, he, he's in the story. Well, he began in 27 BC, he began to rule Rome and actually ended the civil wars. He ruled with such mighty power that he actually brought peace. He brought over 120 years of peace to Rome. It was during that season that all the best things in Rome, the aqueducts and, uh, and some of the things in the writings, all happened in that era up until Marcus Aurelius. Like that was the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And what's wild is in that time, they referred to Caesar as their savior, as the Soter. He was their savior. He was the bringer of peace. And what's crazy is like in the time of Jesus, like, like he wouldn't have that reputation yet. But by the time Luke wrote these words, right, it made sense. Luke is saying, listen, these angels, what well, they're talking about, this thing that Caesar did, he brought peace to the entire empire. 
the, the person that we worship, Jesus, is actually going to bring peace to the entire world. And I love that, that Jesus is the bringer of peace. And what's crazy is if you think about this, we all have people that we have conflict with. I mean, maybe you don't. That's not true. I know you do. We all have people in our life, right, that we have conflict with. All humans all over every culture of the world knew that they have conflict with God. Every culture has found some way to make themselves right with God, right? Whether it was like bringing like money or uh, some sort of agriculture or all the way to like murdering children, right? Like bringing child sacrifice. There was some sort of way that, man, we're wrong with God. We need to be made right. Like we know we need to be made right somehow. And when we are not made right, oh, that is the worst. There's times when the I've been in fights with Katie, and it is, like, brutal. And you know what happens when you start getting in a fight with someone? Like, your brain just does weird things. You just think, how am I going to get out of this? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to solve this? Maybe I just need to, like, move out and, like, get a job at McDonald's. Like, is there, even, is there even a way through, right? It's like, because your brain just goes that way because we hate conflict so much. We'd rather blow up our lives, blow up our families, blow up whatever, because dealing with that conflict is so scary. Now, thankfully, I just have to be married to a very mature woman who's very forgiving. But what's crazy is when you actually experience forgiveness, it's like, oh, right? there's peace. When you've been in conflict with someone and they actually forgive you, it's like, oh. And that's what Jesus did, right? Uh, in the, the book of John, he tells us about when Jesus goes to get baptized. and says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the Soter, the Savior, one of his main functions was for us to be saved, to actually have peace with God and with each other. So this little baby Jesus, who was incredible, his whole mission was to grow up, to be a man, to show us how to live, to be the humans that God wired us to be, ultimately to die on the cross, to cover our sins, and then rise again to basically let us all know that sin and death have no power over us. Jesus is the Savior goes on to say that not only is he the Savior, that Jesus is actually the Messiah. Now, in Greek, it says it's Christ, right? Which we say Jesus the Christ, but Christ is just the Greek word of the word Messiah. And Messiah was the hope of the Jewish people, was the Jewish people were longing for there to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king who is actually going to make all wrongs right. This little tiny people who have just been oppressed and worked over by every culture for all time as they've been in the number one trade route of the whole ancient world, they knew at some point God was going to bring a Messiah who was going to actually rule and care for them and bring Israel back to this prominent place of glory. Now, it's interesting, you may hear us in sermons a lot, but we'll, we'll go, hey, here's a verse, and, and, and we end up extrapolating all of this meaning out of this one verse, and you're like, how in the world did you do that? And it's hard because in our culture, a lot of times people will take verses out of context to try to say something that's probably not appropriate or doesn't really check out. But what I found out is in the, in the Jewish world, um, they have so much meaning in each scripture passage that they end up extrapolating so much out of it that's helpful for us to see what Jewish authors had to say. And I came across this because uh, Shelley and I actually are reading this book uh, called Lessons in Leadership. And, uh, and if, for those of you who grew up in liturgical uh, churches, uh, there's a thing called the liturgy, not the liturgy, the lectionary, right? And it said, hey, here's the lectionary, which means the church, these are passages of scriptures to read every week. And by doing that over a certain amount of time, you've read through the whole, uh, all of scripture. Well, in the Jewish world, they have a version of the lectionary where there's a weekly re Torah reading. And by reading that, you end up reading through the entire Torah once a year. And so what this rabbi did is he takes the weekly Torah reading and then he comes up with a lesson in leadership around it. It is incredible. 
But what I realize is he's talking about these characters that I've known for my entire adult life, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, um, Moses, Aaron. And he's talking about these people that I've known, and he's coming up with these like, interpretations that I'm like, what are you talking about? I would have never thought about Moses' sister Miriam in that way, right? And because in the Jewish world, they've had 3,000 years of looking at these passages of scriptures, of diving into these passages of scriptures, of mining these passages of scriptures. You know, I get so distracted with TikToks and watching, you know, incredible films like Ricky Bobby that I actually don't have the time, right? And I don't dive that deeply. We get, and the Jewish people, that's what they did. So they have 3,000 years of diving in. And when they have dove in, in, dove in you know what I'm saying, into the scriptures like that, <laughs> what they do is they realize, whoa, God is actually going to do something new in the future. He's going to bring a Messiah. And this, you're going to know that the Messiah is coming because the Messiah is going to do these four things. The first is he's going to be a descendant of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, it says this. So when these days are over uh, and you rest with your ancestors, so when you die one day, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He will be the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever forever, right? And so immediately, this king, this anointed one who's going to restore Israel forever, how are you going to know who the Messiah is? Well, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of King David, right? That's why in Matthew, when you go through the genealogy in Matthew, they make it very clear that Jesus is through the line of David. So that's the first thing. So if you're going to be the Messiah, you have to be in the line of David. The second thing, this Messiah is someone, the way that they interpret it is that they were they're going to be, uh, have military and political power. They're going to have power in the world, right? And so the prophet uh, Zechariah says this in chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of, do- of a donkey, excuse me. He shall speak peace to the nations. He sh- his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And what I love is people, when we read scripture, we just miss it. We love this first part. There's going to be this righteous king. And he's going to rule from the sea to the sea. And then we all forget the middle part. Oh, he's going to be mounted on a donkey. And all you Bible scholars in here, who knows when Jesus actually fulfilled that passage of scripture? Do you remember that? Palm Sunday, right? Jesus, and everyone thought Jesus was the Messiah, right? When he's his earthly minister, like, you're the Messiah. And he could have wrote, ridden into Jerusalem on a, on a giant stallion and said, right, I am the Messiah. Instead, he said, nope, I'm coming in as a humble king. And here's just a little challenge for all of us, especially as we enter the political season, right? When you see Jesus' words, when you see the way the movement of Christ works, it is an upside-down kingdom. He does not leverage political power the way that we thought he would or should. And therefore, we probably shouldn't wield political power the way we ought to or should. It's an upside-down kingdom that leverages grace and mercy and humility and service. All right, two more here. So the second, uh, the third one is this, that not only was he going to be from the the line of David, not only was he going to be a political ruler, but he was also going to be someone who's going to reestablish uh, the temple worship in a way that was righteous and holy. He was going to be like the great high priest. So in, uh, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and 3, the prophet is pointing to Jesus like this. says, I will send my messenger who prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So the Messiah is not only going to be a political powerhouse, he's going to be someone who's going to restore worship, who's going to refine our hearts, who's going to cleanse the temple so that we can be worshipers of God. There's a beautiful, Seth brought this up, there's a beautiful worship song from a long time ago, Refiner's Fire. They didn't like launderer's soap. I thought that's, that should be the, the round two of that. All right, so the, and then finally, the, the Messiah is going to be an eschatological judge. That's a really fancy, like, churchy word. Eschatological is just the end of days. At the end of the world, at the very last time, the Messiah is going to come and be the judge over all of humanity, over all the world. And the prophet Daniel points to the Messiah this way. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was the one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into this presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is the everlasting dominion that will not pass, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the way Christians have interpreted all those passages of Scripture is that all the hopes of the Jewish people wanting there to be a Messiah who would come and rule the way that God intended has been made known in Jesus, which is pretty interesting that the way that Jesus has chosen to rule in his upside-down kingdom is the unique and hidden way for his kingdom to be made known on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Messiah, and then lastly, that Jesus is the Lord. And this word Lord um, is the word Lord, right? It makes sense. Uh, Kyrie or Kyrios. And, but that's just the Greek root word that's, um, that's supposed to go to the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai is Hebrew for Lord. Sorry, I tricked you. No, I was just, it's simple. Like it's, not, it's not that complicated, but Adonai, right, is Lord. But what's incredible is uh, when Moses goes and meets God in the, will, in the burning bush, God actually reveals his personal name, Yahweh. It's the most sacred name in all of Scripture. And because we're so informal, we go, Yahweh, and we sing songs like it. But in the Jewish world, you do not say Yahweh. You do not say the most sacred word of God. And in, in fact, but it was written all over the Scriptures, Yahweh this, Yahweh this, Yahweh this, and you would not say it. And so what the Hebrew scribes would do is they put in little, um, little vowel markers that would let people know that you don't say Yahweh. The vowel markers were the word Adonai, and so you would say Lord. So if you're ever reading through the Old Testament, especially through the Psalms, and you see capital L-O-R-D, and so it says the Lord, which is Adonai. But if it says capital L-O-R-D, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. Right? And Jesus is saying that God that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush is actually Jesus. I love uh, Michael's prayer that God, the incarnation, is the, the personal God, Yahweh, being made, self, made himself known in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh in flesh. All right, here's, so that's it. So when we worship Jesus, we want to make sure that we do not miss it, that I love the baby Jesus, but he's not just the baby Jesus. That was a moment in history that Jesus, who he really is, is our Savior, he's our Messiah, and he's the Lord. And I love how, how uh, Luke wraps up the angel's message, right? Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to whom his favor rests. And if you're a fourth grader like me in my heart, you're like, yes, God's favor rests on me and not to you, right? (laughs) 
Because we used to think it was, oh, God, and peace on earth to all people, right? But no, it says peace on earth to whom his favor rests. There, there's a boundary, there's a barrier. And it kind of like makes you feel like, ooh, does that work for us in Marin these days? Now, if you're a fourth grader, you're like, yeah, I'm in, you're out. <laughs> but that's not God's heart. And as you've seen, when you read the scriptures, the whole point of the Christmas story is that God's favor would extend to all of humanity, I love this picture of covenant theology. The way of covenant theology is the picture of God being our heavenly father and we are his children, right? The picture of uh, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, that God is this wealthy landowner. And I just imagine this giant, beautiful home with this giant, beautiful table and everyone who is part of this landowner's life just experiences grace and mercy and good food. And the place you want to be is around the table. Every person who is a part of this landowner's domain gets to experience that kind of table. And I love the stories of, of Jesus that Jesus tells over and over again because he's like, no, you're missing it. So one of the sons takes all of his father's stuff and he runs off, squanders it and takes off and he leaves. He says, that's nice, but I want to do my own thing and blows up everything and leaves the favor of God, right? And then ultimately comes back. It's a beautiful story, right? Comes back, experiences God's grace. But the older brother, who's been living the good Christian life for his whole life, he also misses it. When you hear the story, he's outside of the house as well, and he misses it. So the idea is, it's not that God has this harsh line and you're either in or out. It is this open invitation. Even the sons miss it. And what I love is God sees his, the prodigal son from a long way out, and he runs out to meet him. Throws him apart. He says, get in here get around my table, experience my favor and my peace. The older son, who's all, you know, messed up for his own thing, he goes outside, finds the older son, says, don't be out here in the cold, come and be with me. A couple weeks ago, uh, Jeff mentioned uh, this picture. This is uh, the picture of Rembrandt's uh, painting of the prodigal son, and uh, Henry Nouwen wrote this incredible devotion about it, and he had a quote from it, which reminded me how much I love this book, so I ended up reading this book these last couple weeks, and Henry Nouwen just blows my mind. And this is what I love about the Christmas story. If glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all whom my favor rests, and if it rests to the sons, what's interesting is God actually wants it to rest to the whole world. But so two things have to happen. One, we have to recognize or we're a son that's outside and we need to be adopted, come back home and be with God. But the second is, and what, what Henry Nouwen says, is that the final part of that journey is that we actually become like the father, right? The Christian maturity is not just embracing the sitting around the table. Christian maturity is taking on the mantle of the father of that story and keeping our eyes peeled for any and all people who might need to come home and experience God's rest and God's favor. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right, prayed the same thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said, right, we are ministers of reconciliation. We, as God's people, are God's ambassadors of his household designed to invite people in to his house to sit around his table so that during Christmas we get to say glory to God in the highest heaven and peace to all those whom God's favor rests. And I hope as a child of God you would experience that for you. And I hope as an ambassador of God, you would be willing to extend that to somebody in your world who needs it desperately. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll spend a little time in worship. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, I'm so thankful that you worked so hard to make it possible to get our heads around that you, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, would actually want to be known. 
and you've made yourself most known through your son, Jesus. And I just pray for me, but for all of us, that we wouldn't get so distracted by our deformed worldview of who you are, but we would let scripture continue to remind us and shape who you are. And that we would be inspired and challenged and motivated. And our heart would be just growing in our love and affection for you because you are the savior, you are the Messiah, and you are the Lord. And so we join with the angels, give you all of the glory, and we long for your peace to rest on more and more of those whom your favor rests. May we experience that ourselves, and may we extend that to one another. Amen and amen. Let's stand as we worship.